welcome to Ron Book Pod. This is your host, Sarah, coming to you June 2021. Today I have with me Steve Amadown. Hey, Sarah. How's it going? Pretty good. Great to have you back. Good. Yeah, so this is a conversation that we recorded almost a full year ago now when I was uh, at the BGSU Pop Culture Library, and, and we're, we've, we talked about your paper that was going to be presented at the BGSU Romance Conference that was canceled because pandemic. So we recorded this back then and and we're excited to finally share it. Yeah, and you're no longer at the library, correct? Correct, I am now an archivist, independent scholar, uh, stay-at-home dad, and purveyor of romancehistory.com, which is uh, where I blog about um, some of the tidbits of, of romance history that I come across in my research. That's really cool. I've been seeing your joy of finding the research has been kind of inspiring lately. Yeah, it's a lot of fun to to sort of be able to dig into some of these things um, on kind of just to to sit down and have the time to to look at them individually and and not have to always be doing sort of other other things on top of it. So I've I've enjoyed that that part of it at least. Yeah. And since we recorded last, I've been doing a lot more digging deep into, or buying, I should say, buying all the Avon pulps that I can find that are under $50. Right. Um, and it's been interesting because then I found a lesbian thriller hardcover hiding in a box in the closet. <laughs> and I was like, this is from 1998. It's not a romance, but it's a thriller. And supposedly this was with William and Morrow and not Avon, but this says Avon and uh... nothing makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> it never does in publishing. That's the thing. I'm still sad about the conference, and maybe next year they'll have it again, but it won't be you there, so that'll still be It won't be sad. me, yeah. That's all right. We'll, the, the research continues, and that's all that matters. Yeah, the research never ends, and that's the fun part. Exactly. I'm here today with Steve, who's going to be interviewing me about my research into Avon Books, who's now one of the big romance publishers. All right, take it away, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> well, first, thanks thanks for having me. Sarah, I was so excited when I saw your, uh, your proposed presentation for the romance conference we were going to have at Bowling Green about the history of Avon and, and its, its, its queer publishing history. And I was so sad that we had to cancel but I'm glad to be here to to kind of grill you about this because I I think it's a fascinating topic that hasn't hasn't really been uh, given any sort of of research over the years. So I wanted to to maybe start with kind of a broad overview of of queer pulp fiction in general and where it started and and what you've kind of found out in your in your travels around this. Okay, so I suppose first off I should say I'm not an academic. <laughs> Um, I'm a hobbyist researcher, as I like to call myself sometimes, um, because that mostly I'm just like, oh my God, there is so much gay history and there are so many gay books and I want to go find all the things about the gay books, except they're all in like six different research corners. Right. They're kind of everywhere. <laughs> they're yeah, like the everywhere. Stuff is really There's spread like, out. The black lesbian fiction corner. There's the white lesbian fiction corner and the gay pulp corner and then the regular gay fiction corner. And then romance is kind of just teetering all around the edges being like, oh, well, we don't really, this isn't us. This isn't <laughs> our history. And I'm like, no, 
it is your history. <laughs> so I suppose I should also actually say what the title of my project was. What was the title of my project? Uh, you know what? I have it right here, if you want me to read it. Sure. From Pulp Tragedy to Romance HEA, The Evolution of Gay Pulp Fiction and Queer Romance at Avon. That's a good title. It I, is. I it's a solid title. title. I think it was Cat Sebastian who helped me with that title. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, before gay pulp fiction, like in the 1920s, we had books like The Well of Loneliness by Radcliffe Hall, which was like the big lesbian book of the 1920s. And then we had like Orlando by Virginia Woolf. And then one I found recently that was actually published by Avon, or the translation was The Scorpion by Anna Elizabeth Weirach. It was published, there were three volumes. The first two were published in a translation by Soviet spy for the communist underground, Whitaker Chambers, which I thought wow. was really cool. Um, <laughs> Avon published a translation of that in 1948, and it was published before that in the States in 1932. It's like when you get like past like 1990, it's really hard to track down publishing dates for books. <laughs> right, right, absolutely. Especially, especially if you with the paper the paperback publishers would often just leave off the dates or they'd have the original copyright date or or whatever in there and that was it. Yeah, like there are some books I found that are labeled Avon. Because Avon started as a paperback publisher in 1941 by mm -hmm. American News Corp to become a rival to Pocket Books. <laughs> so there are some I found that are labeled as Avon from 1936. And I'm like, that doesn't seem right. <laughs> I don't know if a book can exist at a publisher before that. So like maybe right. this is like, because Avon did a lot of originals as well as paperback reprintings of hardcover books. Right, which is what, what they were all doing at that point. Dell and, and Pocket were all, were all doing that as well. Yeah. So like the brief overview of Avon, it was, it was founded in 1941. It was then bought by Hearst in 1959. Mm -hmm. It entered the modern, quote-unquote, romance genre in 1972 with... The Flame and the Flower. The Flame and the Flower. <laughs> and then in 1999, uh, uh, Hearst was bought out by News Corp, and then all non-romance titles then went to sister, their sister press, William Morrow, and then romance stayed at Avon. Okay. And they've been romance ever since. Except they also still have the publishing rights to the Satanic Bible. <laughs> so, like, if you're, like, searching Ava on Avon's website, by oldest, what will come up is the Satanic Bible. <laughs> <laughs> so they're just thinking, like, you have romance and the Satanic Bible. This amuses me greatly. <laughs> <laughs> well, and Avon, not to sidetrack, but Avon was one of the, they had a, a Satanic Gothic line of romances in the 70s, I think, right? Was that Avon? It might have been Avon. The hard thing is they so they like list their titles as like Avon Bard. Mm -hmm. Like they'll list their imprints as like Bard and so on and forth, but then not all the books have an imprint on the cover for Avon. Okay. So then it's like I don't like what imprint does this go for? Like how does this work? Mm. So it makes everything very confusing. Like, the only one that actually has an imprint label on it for Bard that I have, anyways, is The Lesbian Body by Monique Wittig, which is a French translation uh -huh. from, what is this from? 1976. 
Okay. So yeah, so it's like, it gets very confusing because I kept finding, this is also another sidetrack very quickly, lesbian mystery books from like the early 90s that were listed <laughs> as Avon, but were actually William and Morrow. And the only way I found this out was Magretta messaged L. Keck, one of the editors at Avon, mm-hmm. <laughs> and was like, what book is this actually belong to? Right. And it was William and Morrow. And then I realized, what do you, and I was like, wait, they have all their records? What do you mean they have all their <laughs> records? I could have just been emailing Avon this entire time. Right. <laughs> so anyways. Where where did the, the queer pulp fiction come in? So we know, you know, everything kind of started off in the 30s, but, and then at some point it got rolling in this uh, slightly salacious direction. So gay pulp kind of started, or at least lesbian pulp fiction was mostly the 50s into the 60s. Mm. And it was when publishing got this new mass market pocket book, mass market paperback that was cheap to produce Mm -hmm. and you could just pulp it. That's why they're called pulp. And that's why it's really hard to find most of them because they just (laughs) went back to the paper mill. Become new books. So with lesbian pulp in particular, it was primarily written by men for men with unhappy Mm -hmm. endings. Though there were quite a few authors such as Vin Packer at Gold Medal Books and Ann Bannon who were lesbian women Mm -hmm. writing within the confines of this genre that because of censorship laws and because of the Comstock acts and all the lovely obscenity laws, you couldn't have positive depictions of queer people along with many other things. Like you couldn't have positive depictions of interracial, interracial relationships or birth control, (laughs) many, many different things. Like you couldn't send information on birth control through the mail you couldn't send steamy love letters. Mm-hmm. That was a no-no. If you were caught doing that, they would just confiscate everything. Like, there's an right. article I found about, like, 300 Valentines being confiscated in Chicago because they were too lurid. <laughs> so, in um, Lee Sievers' The Encyclopedia of Pulp Fiction Writers, uh, Mary Jane Meeker, who was the author of In Packer, Recall the instructions given to her by gold medal editor Dick Carroll. The only restriction he gave me was that I couldn't have a happy ending. Otherwise, the post office might seize the books as obscene. So the editors and everyone was aware that in order to get these books published, you couldn't have that happy ending. The lesbians mm-hmm. either had to die or leave each other or get sent to an asylum and so on and so forth. But... An inverse law also seems to be at work, to quote uh, Catherine Forrest's book on Pulp Fiction, the better and more honest the book, the more its jacket copy must moralize against it. (laughs) (laughs) So, like, I have a copy of Whisper Thy Love by Valerie Taylor, and it's like, theirs was the kind of love that dared not show the world. And on the back, it goes... A haunting and shocking story of how a young girl's hunger for love made her prey to the tempting forbidden passions. <laughs> so, like, the more the lesbian writers tried to have a positive depiction while still in the confines of having to have an ha- unhappy ending, mm-hmm. the more the publishers were like, well, we have to, like, not get shut down by the post office. Right. <laughs> uh, one thing I found that was really cool was The Ladder, which was the first lesbian news- newsletter. Um, began running reviews of the Pulp Fiction, and they had a rating system. 
from A to C. So like an A with three asterisks, asterisks meant there was a lesbian main character with a sympathetic portrayal. And an A with no asterisks meant there was a lesbian main character with an unsympathetic portrayal. And B and C meant like there were lesbian subplots or suppressed themes. And then they had T for trash, which meant voyeuristic <laughs> or demeaning books. <laughs> so it was like, it, it's just really interesting. And the, the most useful website I found for Pulp Fiction is the Mount St. Vincent University's collection because they're okay. like dozens and dozens of archives, but they're the only one that has the cover, the name of the creator, the dates, subject, publisher, type of book, printing location, author and gender sexual orientation, the type of pulp fiction, and then if it was deemed objectionable by the National Organization of Decent Literature. And like it goes into like so many more details. Oh. Like this it and they have like explaining what pulp fiction lesbian pulp fiction is and the various obscenity laws, especially in Canada. Mm-hmm. And it goes into so much depth about that. And it was it, it's a lot easier when doing research. Like, okay, here's this thing. I can go read it now. Sure. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. It's always good to know that that kind of resources out there, especially for something that's sort of as sort of un, unexplored as as this area, you know, because I know I've, I've only seen a few few sort of resource books about this. But it, yeah, yeah, like the lesbian pulp books were were advertised as men's adventure books. OK, Whereas, um, according to Michael Bronx, Bronsky, the trajectory of gay male pulps is very different. There was no burgeoning market of gay male novels in the 1950s because they apparently had little crossover appeal for the substantial heterosexual relationships. Many gay pulps were reprints of best-selling literary books that did not do as well, sell as well in pulp. So, uh, like, Mary Renault's book or The Pillar? Truman no. Cody's The Pillar. But like a lot of the gay male pulps had a different, they were, they were more, I don't want to say seedy, but they had a different trajectory than lesbian pulps. Lesbian right. pulps at certain times were seen as survival literature for mm-hmm. lesbian women. Cause you could get these at like the drugstore and your bookstore and stuff like that. Like you could mm-hmm. get them and they had just like the, all the lurid covers and the moralizing and stuff like that. Like I found right. out that, New York had a burgeoning erotica publishing industry in the 30s, hmm. and a lot of it was a lot of the publishers were Jewish immigrants. Uh-huh. So then the Catholic moralizers being like, "We're not anti-Semitic, right? You're publishing porn, right? That's why we're talking like this." And I'm like, "No, you're still anti-Semitic." And that's really um, interesting because you know the the comic books were coming out of sort of the same community in New York in the the New York Jewish community and immigrant communities generally and they were opposed by the catholic moralizers uh, the comic code authority <laughs> exactly which is very similar to the comstock laws yeah an overview for like obscenity laws there was the comstock act which was passed in 1873 after intense lobbying by anthony comstock the perpetual fun killer who was a, he was the head of the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice. And he was also like a postal service worker. (laughs) So you couldn't distribute obscenity, abortion information, contraceptives, sex toys, personal letters, 
and any of the above regarding the, or about them. And then the UK had the Higlin test, which to deprave and corrupt those whose minds are open to such immoral influences, what was how his stuff was regarded obscene, regardless if it had artistic or literary merit. Mm-hmm. So then there was also like the Hayes Code in the movies that was developed in the 30s. Mm-hmm. That had like a long list of things you couldn't show. And then there was like the Comics Code Authority. And there was just all these things that just slowly and over a period of time, it wasn't until ni- 1966, the Supreme Court effectively gutted the nation's obscenity laws in Memoirs v. Massachusetts, uh, that the state could not ban a reprint of John Cleland's erotic novel Fanny Hill. So that's um. what kind of paved the way for everything else. But that didn't stop like customs officials, like with the gay bookstores in Canada, mm-hmm. they were importing books from the U.S. and they have different rules at t- customs borders. So all their shipments were getting seized. Mm-hmm. That wasn't decided by the Canadian Supreme Court until 1994. Oh, interesting. There is, there's, there were so, it was such a hard time to be a gay bookstore because you don't know when you're going to get raided because you might have something deemed obscene. Even if you're just mm-hmm. selling regular books that might have a kiss or two in it, like. Mm-hmm. It was hard. Well, and and so thinking about that time, there was, and some of this, you know, we mentioned Truman Capote. It was uh, The City and the Pillar was the title. But there was also like James Baldwin publishing Giovanni's Room and Patricia Highsmith with uh, The Price of Salt. Uh, you know, so there was sort of what we would consider now literary fiction. Yeah. That, that um, fell into this category as well. It wasn't just though with sort the of price of salt. Books. It is considered a pulp because Highsmith published it under a different name. Oh, okay. Because she felt if she published it under her own name, she would ruin her career. Uh. Um, so that was published as a 25-cent lesbian pulp by Bantam in 1953. Um, oh, okay. And it was considered like one of the first books or the lesbian pulp books to have a happy ending. Mm. Even though the ending is like she has to like leave behind her child, so it's still not like a great ending. <laughs> Um, but according to Catherine Forrest, it's not the first pulp happy ending. That is The Torchlight to Valhalla by Gail Wilhelm in 1938. Okay. And then the other note about the book The Scorpion that Avon published, it also had a happy, it didn't actually have a happy ending, but um, the piece does not end in the death of the protagonist, as was common in similar works, but leaves Metty single it does not preclude however the possibility of a future relationship and that was published in 1919 so Hmm. there were limited works that showed homosexuality in positive lights but it was still very limited given that you could go to jail (laughs) right and then there was also like you mentioned vin packer so marjorie meeker wrote what four or five sort of non-fiction lesbian books as ann aldrich that were still published as pulps, but they were like, you know, they were almost uh, guidebooks in a way. They they weren't really, they weren't fictional in any way. They were sort of, they were still that kind of salacious, yeah, you know, wrote, salacious cover copy. But they were actually, you know, she wrote them as as kind of useful books. Like there were nonfiction books at the time that were published and stuff like that about like gay history and mm-hmm. stuff like that and like. The there were the startings of the gay organizations like the Mattachine Society and the Daughters of mm-hmm. Bellatus. And it it's all there's so many threads that it's like hard to tug them all to get together. 
Like right. how you said with like James Baldwin, him writing gay African American literature, but that was his second book in 1956. Right. And so there's so many different traditions of gay writers, and it's mm-hmm. it's it's really fascinating in all honesty. Like James Baldwin is such an important figure in African American literature and gay literature, and it's just I don't think he had anything published by Avon. I don't think he did, unless it was it maybe maybe a reprint. They did do a lot of reprints, like they had a lot of Christopher right. Isherwood's books, mm-hmm. um, and stuff like that. So there was, and they started publishing gay fiction right from the beginning, like mm-hmm. they they were doing it the entire time. And there was a couple Japanese translations of books, and there was one weird one that took place after the Civil War with KKK people. Oh. And it was, and there's like, like other questionable books like that. They were kind of, <laughs> and they're like, yeah, I don't think I'm gonna go find that one. <laughs> <laughs> and and so Avon is kind of rolling along with all of this, right? Like they're. Yeah. They, they weren't a particular trendsetter, but they were they were there doing a lot of the same yeah. same work. So in Michael Bronsky's Culture Clash, he mentions that um, Avon and St. Martin's were advertising their books in the gay magazines at the time. Oh, interesting. So they knew they had an audience for the books they had, mm-hmm. um, and they tried to make as much money off those books that they could. But in 19, after a few years, St. Martin's and Avon gradually decreased their gay lines. Although some titles did very well, expectations of huge profits probably overreached the initial sales. So, like, the books made money, but not as much money as, say, like, the front runner. Right. And and so, yeah, so bringing the front runner into it kind of catapults us into the 70s, which is, yeah. is a really interesting time. So, you know, talk, talk a little bit about, you know, as a librarian, I have to mention Anne Allen Shockley, uh, who is an incredible librarian in her own right. But she also wrote uh, one of uh, one of these early uh, and she's still alive. lesbian romances. She is, yes. She's. I have retired, no idea but... where she is because she has like zero internet presence, but yeah. she's still alive. I would guess she's probably in Tennessee somewhere because I think she was at uh, Fisk University until she retired. So she was born in 1927. Um, She worked, or she wrote for her high school newspaper, the Fisk University's paper. She graduated with a master's in library science in 1959. Um, She worked as a librarian at Delaware State College and the University of Maryland Eastern Shore. And then she started working at the Special Negro Collection at Fisk University in 1969. And she served as a professor of library science, university archivist, an associate librarian, and she founded the Black Oral History Project until she retired in 1988. So she has a vast career as a newspaper reporter, librarian, writer. She wrote so much. The unfortunate thing is besides her um, fiction books and some of her nonfiction books, all her newspaper reporting, Mm -hmm. um, especially like at the Louisville Defender, was not microfiched. Oh. (laughs) So like trying to find any of her writing online is very hard. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, there's a couple academic papers about her books, like, especially Loving Her comes... Um, or Say Jesus and Come to Me. Yes, Say Jesus yeah. and Come to Me. Yeah. 
And then her short story, the black and white of it, and a couple other books as well. There's scholarship on those books. Like, I can find academic articles about them, like about the race, mm-hmm. or about how she discusses race, class, sexuality, heteronormativity, the black church, all of that. But finding her her words of, like, her reporting is very difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, though there is a lovely bibliography that was put together in the 80s of, like, all her papers. Oh, okay. But... It's not, uh, it doesn't have, like, the papers inside it. It's just the bibliography. (laughs) (laughs) Which I'm like, this is cool, but all her papers are either with her, the University of Wisconsin, or the Lesbian Mm -hmm. History Archives. Oh, okay. So, like, I'd have to travel because not everything is digitized. Right. But she was, she's really, she is, like, really cool. Um, So, loving her was published in hardcover in 1974 and then published by Avon in 1978 as Mass Market. And it's about an interracial lesbian couple. And it's like one of the f- uh, one of the first books about black lesbians that is like actually open about it, mm-hmm. uh, which I thought was really cool. And like, as I was looking at Avon's history, it was, it's hard to determine like the race of an author. She's the <laughs> only black woman I was able to find pre oh interesting or back then anyways mm-hmm. i'm sure there were others but i most of these people don't leave a footprint behind <laughs> right right because they're working under a pen name or stuff like that that they, they they don't exist so the her first the first book dealt with interracial relationships the second one dealt with a black lesbian preacher who and it targeted like the hypocrisy of the male-dominated patriarchal black church. Her work was criticized for not being black enough and not being lesbian enough. Oh, so like loving her was criticized for still falling into like heteronormative roles among the two women. Mm. Her it was criticized for not being black enough or not writing black lesbian women correctly to fit into the Western mold of sexuality and gender that black lesbians had been fitting themselves into, which I'm white, so I can't really speak to that comfortably enough to be like, right. hey, here's how black lesbians were writing in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. That's not something I can, like, speak to a genuine enough or with enough knowledge to be like, this is exactly what was going on in the 70s, because I don't. Right, right. <laughs> um, but it was, it's still just very interesting to read the articles that are written, or the scholarly articles written about her books, because um, they, they go... They go hardcore in depth to like research, like or talking about like class and stuff like that, and mm-hmm. black nationalism. And we're on the other foot. We have Gordon Merrick, mm-hmm. who there is exactly one scholarly article. Oh, interesting. There is one article about him, and that's it. Huh. But it's like more about his life and about how he was published. So it's like less criticizing what his books were about. So it's like, not necessarily more accessible than the Shockley papers, but okay. it's like, here's what his writing journey was like. Right. Um, now he was he was also published by Avon or he was eventually published? By he Avon. was eventually published by Avon. He first was published by Bernard Geis mm-hmm. uh, in 1970 of his first book. Mm-hmm. And that was the Lord. The Lord won't mind. Yeah, that was the Lord won't yeah. mind. And it was published because 
it had been rejected like so many times because he was trying to like get it into hardcore hardcover because he wanted to be like you wanted to go into like a literary tract not like a romance track. Right. Um, so Bernard Geis, his editor sent it over there and both the editors hated it. <laughs> they absolutely hated it. And despite his editors, Geis was like, ah, we're going to accept this. I don't like it either, but we're going to accept this. And so they, he wanted him to turn like the grandmother into like a bitter old lesbian and then suddenly make an incest plot and do all these changes to the book. And Merrick was like, no, (laughs) I don't want to do that. So I'm not going to do that. It's really interesting. So it turns out that Merrick was also a spy. Right. He was with the OSS. Yeah. Yeah. Which I was like, huh, that's really cool. Yeah. (laughs) Like there's all these, these people lead all these interesting lives Mm -hmm. and you don't, there's not enough scholarship about them. And a lot of like the articles about Anne Shockley, they're like, there isn't enough scholarship. She's not recognized enough. We need to do more scholarship with her. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I feel like this is terrible to say, but you know how like a lot of times when people die and all their papers end up at a university. Right. right. I feel like that's what's going to happen. Is she is going to die. And then all her papers are going to be donated to a university. And then the scholarship will happen. More than likely. I mean, that's uh, the thing. If there's no, like you said, there's no footprint for someone. It, it's, it becomes in, increasingly hard, especially the further they get from their fame, until those papers kind of become more publicly available. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's interesting and also difficult. And I just, it's so fascinating, the entire history of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so he later moves uh, Bernard Geis's publishing house closed and then he moved to Avon he really wanted to get back to William and Morrow and publish in hardcover and they were like mm-hmm. no no <laughs> sorry no um, so he published with Avon in 1974 with Fourth into Light okay. and he published um, a total of six books with them his last with them being The Great Urge Downward in 1984. Okay. After 1984, besides one random book that's like an anthology that has a lesbian character in it, I mm-hmm. can't find any queer fiction at Avon. Yeah. I can find, I have one book that's called Being Homosexual, Gay Men and Their Development that's published in 1987. Interesting. That it, or 1989, that was like, the positive guide for gay men and social development, <laughs> apparently, or like the most positive one that was actually helpful to people and not like right. you're all terrible. <laughs> so like. So that actually brings me to um, someone you you recently spoke to. Yes. Uh, Vincent Varga in 1980 publishes uh, a book called Gaywick, which is a. A, a gay gothic romance essentially yes. in kind of the Avon mold but talk about you you talked to him recently yes so because I couldn't get a hold of Princeton at all to actually like email me some of Gordon Merrick's papers because <laughs> mm. apparently that's just not a thing that's happening because they didn't respond at all I was like okay well Virga's still alive um <laughs> Shockley's still alive, but has no internet footprint. And there was one other author, um, Ensign Chase, who published Wingmen in 1979, which is a a World War II romance. Um, He's still alive, has an active website, but hasn't responded to me. Uh, So 
I was like, all right, let's let's email Virga through the contact form and see if that goes anywhere. And he sent me an essay of an email back, and it was just <laughs> <laughs> so. His agent at the time was Elaine Markson. Um, she said to him that she sent it to 30 publishers and got 30 rejections, and then sent it to her friend at Avon, Gwen Edelman, who was an editor and had been a colleague of Virga's at Simon & Schuster. Okay. So she loved it, but also said that gay men don't read romance because none of the men at the leather bar down below me clearly want romance. <laughs> <laughs> she lived above a leather bar in Greenwich Village in New York, and, or in the West Village, and I guess because she saw that one specific gay subculture, none of those men wanted romance. <laughs> um, but she took the book on, and she published it, and as he says, uh, they put a brilliant cover on it using all the elements of straight gothic romance. Bookstores had to put signs on it telling their customers the book was gay. The confusion <laughs> led it to being in supermarkets, which led a young boy calling me from the Midwest in the middle of the night to ask me if it was true that men could love other men. He was in love with his gym teacher and was planning to kill himself, but then he found my book at the checkout of his local A&P. Oh, wow. So this book had a profound effect on people. Mm -hmm. at the end of the email he was like feel free to call me and I was like <laughs> okay so I ended up calling him last week and spoke with him for about an hour and he talked about how like people named their houses Gaywick and how like it was I think it was Amistad Maupin who was the one who was like go read this book this this that, that's how it got off the ground the way it did oh, um God. Because he was like, this is a damn good book. Go read it. And then uh, John Eichmann, who was, Virgo was the picture editor for his book, Witness to Power, took it. He went around tour around the country and kept telling people on his tour to read this book. And he called Virgo and said when he was in Texas, he saw the book in a store window with a bullet hole through it. Because <laughs> someone had shot the book. Wow. So... It was reviewed all over in the gay magazines and papers, and it just, I think it had like three printings. Right, because I, I remember it, the first time I encountered the title uh, was in Romantic Times in 1981. Um, so this would have been like the sec first or second issue of that magazine. It mentions that Gaywick is going into its third printing. A very awesome. off the cuff. It's the only time you know gay romance gets mentioned in romantic times for a decade at least. Oh, um, I didn't. But know I thought that. that was really interesting. Yeah. You had asked um, me to ask him if he had any interaction with RWA or Romantic Times, and he mm -hmm. said he didn't. He had no interaction with them at all. He talked about like being friends with Edmund White or Larry mm -hmm. Kramer and the gay community at large like that and those gay writers. Um, okay. And the other book that he wrote for Avon was A Comfortable Corner, which was about recovery from alcoholism from the viewpoint of the partner of the alcoholic, which he published in 1982 and was adopted by 12-step program members. Huh. And those reviews were solid, but then AIDS. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then AIDS happened. Yeah. Uh -huh. One, he did he write he wrote sequels to Gaywick, right? So he wrote a sequel to Gaywick called Vadral Vale, which published in 2000 by oh, Allison okay. Books. And he talked about on the phone to me about 
or and he mentions in his in his email he signed so many books at hospital bedsides and people had mm-hmm. him reading the books out loud at funerals oh, that wow. it got too much for him that he couldn't do it anymore oh, so he packed it in and didn't write for i guess almost a decade i think or at least for the rest of the 80s anyways right. um his partner james mccourt wrote the big book queer street along with a bunch of other um fiction books okay and one of his books mardu gorgeous is how it's pronounced that's not how it's spelled at all um which was about drag queens and stuff like that and he based it off like the op- opera singer friends that he had in real life mm-hmm. and vincent talked about how his out james was the only surviving member of that group oh interesting and he has another there's another book called time remaining that was published in 1993 that there's a new york times article about it like about they call it like the lost aids book that hmm. it was like the tail end of aids and it it's just so sad listening to all these stories mm-hmm. for publishing because i asked him did he think that AIDS was the reason that publishing stopped releasing gay romances. And he said yes. Mm-hmm. Because ni- I, from 1984 until 2012, at Avon specifically, I couldn't find a single gay romance hmm. of any kind. Interesting. That's 28 years. Yeah. Wow. There might be stuff I'm missing, like there was the lesbian mysteries I found, but those were with William and Morrow. There was like a black gay men's fiction thing, but again, it was William and Morrow, uh-huh. which is their sister. So it was company. seen as like, yeah. So it was seen almost like more like literary fiction and not, yeah, not a romance. Yeah, in and the they same sense. Yeah, it's hard to find if these were marketed the same way as the heterosexual romances. Because I don't know how bookstores mm-hmm. were, like, organized in the 70s and 80s, if they had mm-hmm. romance sections, or if everything was just, like, lumped together. Because, yeah. like, Gordon Merrick's books, those, they they sold, they made, like, they sold, like, 100,000 copies at Avon. Mm-hmm. Like, they made the money. But they just, there's an article in... The LA Times in 1993 that says Martin Avon and St. Martin's have gay lines, but may slow down if not outright discontinue. And then in 1988 from the Montreal Gazette, it talks about specifically Merrick's books and gay romance in general, giving gay men an escape from AIDS. (laughs) And I mean, I guess that's one way to think of it. Yeah. If if the if men are hungry for these books then why did publishing stop? <laughs> right, right. Like, um, and there's, like, other articles I found that talked about how, like, in the 80s and early 90s, there were over 200 gay bookstores across the country. Mm-hmm. There are now, like, 10. Right. And then in the same vein, how everyone talks about how there used to be so many gay bars, mm-hmm. and that, like, the digital dating apps killed the gay bar. No, the digital apps didn't kill, like, they were didn't help the like cruising scene but that was not that was aids right right. a lot of it can be traced back to aids i listened to an interview with michael denany who was an editor at saint martin's and he talks about how he would sign authors and then they would be dead by the publishing time oh wow so and that uh those those interviews were on um the fresh air archive with leslie gross Mm -hmm. And there was one from 1986 
97 and then 1994 and it's just it, it's so sad to listen to mm-hmm. like I keep repeating this but it was so sad but yeah as like Kat Sebastian says when I talk with her about it she's like we had representation right and then we didn't right and that's not to negate the work that was done by like Nyad Press who was the lesbian well, press I was gonna Kat say yeah there's there were indie presses there were a, a lot more indie feminist women's lesbian presses mm-hmm. than there were presses specifically aimed at gay men or at mm-hmm. least that i have found so it's it's interesting looking at avon and being like you had all these gay books right yeah you had you you marketed them you clearly knew how to market them mm-hmm. you clearly knew how to sell them and then they just stopped caring right at least that that's the the vibe I'm getting from it anyway. Right. So that's not yeah. to dig Avon or whoever worked at Avon in the 80s that might have been an upper management position. And then it didn't help that in 1999 they were sold HarperCollins and then became exclusively right. romance. And and so you mentioned 2012 as as an end date for for when when there were no Avon queer romance. So what? So in what, 20, what does that landscape look like now? How did that evolve into what uh, it is now? So in 2012, Avon had this little or short-lasting line called Avon Red. It was like an erotica mm-hmm. line. And in 2012, Wicked Gladiators by Lauren Hawkeye was published. And it's an MMF menage. Oh, interesting. Which I don't think they do a lot of menage. Mm-hmm. Like, I haven't seen any menage romances, like even like the recent catalog. Right. Um, so, like, an MF menage where I think, from what I was understanding of the reviews, that the gladiators are together as well as with the woman. So, okay. I don't, I mean, it's it's gladiators, so no one's going to use the word bisexual in ancient Rome, but. Right. <laughs> um, so, we had bisexual gladiators. And then, in 2013, they published Wicked Lies by Karina Cooper, which is a side novella, an MM romance side novella for her main cishet series. But mm-hmm. that was ebook only. Okay. And then in 2015, there was Hard to Be Good by Lauren Kay and Leveled by Jay Crownover. Again, two more side ebook novellas to main cishet romance series. Mm-hmm. And then in 2016, we had Soldier Scoundrel by Cat Sebastian. Okay. Which pretty much, in my opinion, changed the game. <laughs> right. Because it was the first, because when I found it, I was like, oh my God, it's a gay romance from a mainstream publisher coming out with just the same, not tawdry, but like the same historical romance cover style, the same bare chest that like the the cishet books get. Oh my God, this is amazing. Right. Because at this point I hadn't bought, I didn't start looking into Avon till I think it was like, it was last summer after um, the cats, the third FF book was released. So like, I didn't know that, you could have a gay romance in mass market, but mm-hmm. they didn't release it in mass market till like almost six months after the release because <laughs> it was ebook only because it's an impulse line book. Oh, okay. um, so then in 2017, we get three more books from Cat, The Lawrence mm-hmm. Brown Affair, Ruin of a Rake, It Takes Two to Tumble, all MM romances. Mm-hmm. And, the, and also we had Wrong to Need You by Alicia Rye, mm-hmm. which is our first queer MF with a bi heroine both the heroine and hero are so. people of yeah. color. Right, right. I love that book. And it's by an author of color. So that's yeah. our first queer MF book with a bisexual heroine. Right. And then 
2018 gives us Unmasked by the Marquis by Kat Sebastian, which is a bi, queer, uh, male, non-binary romance. Mm-hmm. And then 2019 gives us six books, which is our first FF, which is Once Ghosted, Twice Shy by Alyssa Cole, which is a black mm-hmm. co- uh, two black women. A Duke in Disguise by Kat Sebastian, which is a queer MF. A Prince on Paper by Alyssa Cole, which is a queer MF of a bi hero. Mm-hmm. Um, we get Lady's Guide for Celestial Mechanics, which is the very first full length FF book. It's an actual right. novel. And then A Little Light Mischief, which is their third FF and second novella. And then A Delegate Deception by Kat Sebastian, which is a double a double by queer MF. Mm-hmm. And this year has given us Two Rogues Make a Right by Kat Sebastian, Care and Feeding of Waspish Widows by Olivia Waite, Take a Hint Danny Brown by Talia Hibbert, and Written in the Stars by Alexandra Bellafleur. And next year, as far as I'm aware, gives us Hellion's Waltz by Olivia Waite, which is her third FF, Hang mm-hmm. the Moon by Alexandra Bellafleur, which is a bi MF, How to Find a Princess by Lissa Cole, which is an FF where uh, both heroines are black. And then Kat has an untitled MM romance that releases in July. So in total, that's 25 books. So, so it took them 30, 35, 35 some odd years, and and all of a sudden they just decided to open the the torrent, which is really fascinating. Yeah, and I don't I don't really know what caused them to start accepting queer books again. Mm-hmm. Um, when was the gay marriage case? Oh, that was 2015. So that doesn't that doesn't help me with the 2012 erotica book. Um, but <laughs> so overwhelmingly, their catalog is mostly MM, but that's right. mostly cat. Um, and it's all on the backs of four authors mostly: Cat, right, Olivia, yeah, Alyssa, and Alexandria. Interesting. Um, so it's. There, I will say there is a another, there's a non-binary character in A Prince on Paper by Alyssa Cole, who I don't know if they're getting a side book of their own at all. Mm-hmm. I'm not entirely sure. But their catalog is overwhelmingly cis. Mm-hmm. And the the other question that um that Vincent had asked me was like, oh, they ha- he didn't he didn't know that they had gay books now and he was like oh are there any by men and I was like I was stumped for a second <laughs> I was like wait a second does Avon actually publish anything by a male author no they don't no yeah they don't so it's it's interesting using Avon as a case study because they're I don't know how they accept books I I, I don't know that process but mm-hmm. what I want from Avon mostly is to have more male authors, to have right. trans authors, to have more authors of color writing queer mm-hmm. books. And, and my criteria for all of this was they couldn't be a side character in a prime in a MF cishet book. Right. Because that's not the point of the story if they're a side character. Also, I'm not going through a backlog of 1,200 books to find all the gay side characters. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just, it, it's extremely frustrating, especially with romance scholarship, because a lot of times they don't, they they all look back to, like, the Harlequin pulps, and then, like, the flame and the 
flower and the flame? Right. The flame and the flower. The flame and the flower. Like, I was reading the Rutledge popular romance compendium thingy last night, and there was a section on gothic romance. Mm-hmm. And Gaywick was not mentioned. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of that comes down to the fact that these books are not around very much. You know, it's not easy to find copies of this stuff. You know, with something like Gaywick, it's been sort of republished a few times, and I know... I think Vincent published his own version at some point. It's on um, Kindle Unlimited. <laughs> yeah. And, but like, you know, I know just in our records, you know, we have Gordon Merrick's books. We have the front runner. Um, we don't have a copy of Gaelic and we don't have a copy of Loving Her. So there, there are gaps in sort of the, uh, the availability of a lot of these books to, to sort of be scholarized yeah um, to to coin a word you know so a lot of that is is that and and that's why i think sort of having these conversations is so important because it it can hopefully lead to some of those you know turn on some light bulbs in some people's head to to get them talked about how he wrote a third book in the gaywick trilogy Mm -hmm. but the only copies of it are at william and mary and at yale right and how that um, happened, who knows? And then he, yeah. he and then he also talked about how oh, he saved everything. He has all his papers, and when he dies, they can be donated to whatever university wants them. Right. So it's like all these old gay writers hoarding all their papers till they die. Yeah. And it's kind I mean, of that's like it. yeah. It's it's in the article I was reading from Princeton's review about Gordon Merrick, he the person talks about how Gordon's been left out of the conversation, the broader conversations about gay pulp, because pulp fiction people set the end date for like 1969, and then gay mm-hmm. fiction people think it's like too tawdry to talk about, mm-hmm. and then romance is over here being like, eh? Yeah. Yeah, and I th- I think that, you know, with with a lot of, and, and this happens sort of in general with romance authors, is is a lot of authors don't feel like their story matters and you know their their papers and their stuff matters but i think for a lot of you know in a lot of cases like vincent you know like vivian stevens like uh i didn't you know, know vivian Beru stevens Jenkins, was still all, alive like i thought a lot she of was people dead didn't. yeah no a lot of people didn't and and so to like you know again it's it's about sort of digging these things up and and talking about them and then you know, some some intrepid reporters or, or whoever go out and, and actually talk to these people and, and get these stories yeah. um, is so important. So, yeah. This is just like, there's so many, and mostly it's romance Twitter. So like when everyone's like talking about the history and I'm sitting over my corner being like, but that's not all the history. Right, right. <laughs> and I oh. think, you know, for my part, like I, you know, I talk about the history of romance a lot, but I, I freely acknowledge that I, I have huge blind spots um, and this is one of them. So I'm, I'm thrilled that we had this conversation to sort of yeah. fill in some of my, my own knowledge gaps. And I'm like, I'm still, I'm still finding stuff. Like they had, mm-hmm. Avon had um, a mystery series by Nathan Aldean. Um, there was Vermilion and Cobalt and their name was Nathan Aldean, but it was a pen name for a duo of writers. Um, Michael McDowell and Dana Schutz. What, what year um, was that? Uh, that was seven, no, 80 and 82, I think. Okay. 
So uh, actually, uh, Michael McDowell, I'm assuming it's the same one. Yes. Uh, we actually have his papers at BGSU um, or a large, large collection of his papers. So I'll have to see if I can find those. But he wrote primar primarily in horror. Um, but I know he he sort of bounced around a little bit as yeah. well. He he wrote a bunch of screenplays. He, he's uh, the guy who wrote the screenplay for Beetlejuice. He he wrote Beetlejuice. Uh, he did a bunch of work for uh, the Nightmare Nightmare Before Christmas. So he 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 was a, a really fascinating guy. And he also died of AIDS. <laughs> yes, he did. Um, so like he had two gay mysteries with Avon in the early 80s and Avon like they specifically had gay mysteries gay historicals like there's one that's set in like 1500s Holland really yes wow. or no sorry 1700s Holland mm -hmm. it's called my brother's image by Mark Hamilton I can read the back cover for you sure. Amsterdam 1729 Steen and Monan were blonde, blue-eyed twins, young aristocrats in the 18th century Holland, lovers once, but no more, for now everything has changed. The Spanish Inquisition reigned supreme, and the old bitter cardinal sworn to, sworn to scourge the cobbled city of vice, particularly the vice of young boys. <laughs> Fascinating. <laughs> so, like, there's that. There's um, a bookstore around California called Valerian Books, and they have a lot of old gave old. Avon pulp then they had a copy of loving her at one point I was like well I'm sure there will be more Avon copies of loving her that show up I don't need this one yeah I can't find the other Avon <laughs> and I was like dang it they're out there somewhere yeah because most of these books I've found randomly in used bookstores mm -hmm. like twice sold tales in the Capitol Hill area of Seattle they've got a bunch of old gay pulps mm. um Powell's had a lot of old gay mysteries. Mm, okay. um, and then I think uh, the rest of these came from like Abe books and stuff, not Abe books, thrift books and just other random places. My copy of The Divided Path, which is so old and so sad, it's falling apart and was held together by rubber band. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was like $4 at a used bookstore in Northampton. And like yeah. the girl just kind of looked at that and was like, it's a dollar. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think the other treasure I have is I have an arc of Gaywick. Oh, wow. I have a paper-bound galley arc of Gaywick. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, that I found in the basement of a used bookstore in Northampton, Mass. And I saw it there, and I looked at it, and I was like, well, I don't need this. And then I went back, <laughs> like, six months later, and it was still there. Yeah. And I was like, well, I might as well buy this. This looks, like, vaguely important. It was um, a sign. It was a sign. <laughs> I like got it for like three dollars. That's amazing. Um, That's so it's amazing. Like, I find all these gay books and stuff like that, and it's just. Um, do you have any other questions about like gay pulp or early Avon and stuff like that? Um, I'm sure I do, <laughs> but I I mean I think that covers that covers most of it. I think unless there was other there was anything else you wanted to to talk about. Oh, there was one. Quick thing in my notes. Maurice by E.M. Forrester. Okay. Uh, which was published in 1971 after his death. He wrote it in, like, 1917. Okay. And, like, left a note on it saying, is this publishable, but is it worth it? Because, uh, like, he could have gone to jail for it because sure. it has a happy ending. <laughs> Fascinating. Um, but, like, that's, I don't know if it's necessarily considered romance, but it's, like, gay fiction. And there's, mm -hmm. like, all these, like, subsets like there's I think, as i said this before like 
not all gay fiction is romance. Um, right. But, like, there's romantic elements to a lot of it, and it's just... Right. Well, and I think one of the one of the important things, and I think I'm sure it applies to, to gay and lesbian fiction as well, is prior to, you know, sort of the mid, early to mid-70s, so pr- before The Flame and the Flower, the definition of romance was so mushy that as long as there was sort of a love story, even if it didn't have a happy ending, you know, that was kind of, that fell into that category that really you know, I think could be considered a romance. Yeah, like, um, Front Runner is a love story. Right. But that's which, one of those tragic, yeah, you know, tragic gay love stories. He so it, gets, like, shot while running at the Olympics, weird. and I'm like, how does that work? Yeah. So um, that sort of, that early, the Comstock thing about not having that happy ending becomes a trope almost, right? Yeah through time where like you know gay characters even up till now oftentimes in mainstream media don't get to have that happy ending yeah like um, we have like barrier gays and that's that that's that's still a problem mm-hmm. even today and it's whether or not like it's like a contentious thing of like if it's by a gay person is it barrier gays or not mm-hmm. like I, that's one of the things i found i'm um, right. like the interesting thing with like front runner is that it like I don't know sold a million copies and was like translated into Latvian and mm. made the New York Times bestsellers list, but like so didn't Gordon Merrick's The Lord Won't Mind. That was their 16 weeks. Okay. So like why is Front Runner and and they specifically said the first gay contemporary novel to reach right. the New York Times bestsellers list, but in 1974 what does gay contemporary mean? Right. Like, is it because it was written then? Because the Lord Won't Mind was set in World War II? Yeah. Or is it just because it had a sad ending and therefore was more influential to people? I Yeah, because I, it met expectations. Yeah. yeah. And that, that's the thing. It's all about what were the expectations of right. the wider cis heteronormative right. cis het audience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's and, and Frontrunner was published by William and Morrow, which was Avon's sister company. Okay. Um, which is interesting because they were publishing Merrick's uh, the third book in the the trilogy in '74 as well, so the same year. Yeah, they they published one of his books as well. Yeah. That same year, and it's just and the Flame and the Flower came out in '72 mm-hmm. or no, was it '74? '72. '72. Um, and it's just. Did William Morrow get the highbrow literary books and Avon get the not highbrow literary books? And right. How does publishing work? No one knows. <laughs> it's a secret. And the other thing I just thought of is the one thing I haven't found as much of is trans characters. Right. I didn't. There's not a lot of books with trans characters. If they are, it's dealing with cross-dressing or using prerogative slurs that we don't really want to use today right um and there isn't there isn't as much like there's like gore gore vidal's book Mm -hmm. um that is a really weird book but i guess a trans character but i don't think that's published at avon um but like it's not easy to find the trans history in publishing like i know i think it was Corey and e ottoman who were trying very hard to track down the trans history in publishing in mainstream 
And yes. that in itself is an incredibly difficult task. Like I have a difficult task. They have an even more difficult task. Mm-hmm. And I think um, I know that like Karina Press and St. Martin's in Kensington and Sourcebooks, like they're trying to publish more queer romances. Right. Right. But it's still the burden of indie authors to be publishing. And I think mainstream publishing has a lot to reckon with. They have a lot to reckon with race and with sexuality and how they treat authors and who gets published. Yes, absolutely. And and, and Avon's not perfect. Avon, Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm sure the people are very lovely there and do the best they can, but I think there needs to be more variety. I think we're starting to get that. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's, you know, like you said, it's who gets published. Also, who gets hired? You know, who gets hired at these houses to to buy these books? They're clearly, there's there is a representation issue, most yeah. certainly. Yeah. And why why is Avon the only one who's sort of pushing this this envelope? Uh, yeah, because I know, you know like... To date, I, you know, as you said, the other publishers are are starting to catch up, but why is, why is it taking them so long? Kensington also has an interesting history. Yes, um, they do. And that they, there was one book that Nathan Burgoyne talked about that was like a gay rom-com from 2003. Okay. Um, so Kensington's another interesting place to look at. And I don't know as much about St. Martin's. They just, they market, they have gay fiction, but gay fiction mm-hmm. is not the same as romance. Right. And the romance community, where we have our own reckoning to deal with. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, on representation and who gets a voice and who gets a seat at the table. And ideally, everyone should get a seat at the table. Mm-hmm. Um, but you got to make room at the table for the people who need the seats. Absolutely. Um, yep. So I suppose, in the end, I think Kat Sebastian, Alicia Rye, Alyssa Cole, Talia Hibbert, Olivia Waite, Alexandra Belfler are doing fantastic jobs putting these books out because otherwise I don't think Karina would have done because Karina is owned by Harlequin who is also owned by Harper Collins. So I don't know if Harper Collins would have taken chances. I don't, I don't know what basically had Avon go in 2012 after 28 years. Hey, let's publish gay things again. Like, right. I, right. I don't have that. And the other publishers needed to see the sales numbers yeah. before they before they jumped in. So, yeah. yeah. So. Um, and I do know that Kat's next book is going to have an illustrated cover. I don't know if I'm supposed to say that yet or not, but yeah. um, <laughs> it will be a trade size. Okay. So that that's really exciting for next year. And I, I hope. I don't know. I have I have hope for Avon. Like the, I have hope for publishing, even when things are shitty and terrible. And it's yeah. There you go. I hope I answered most of the questions. As you as certainly I did. I think I think that's a great sort of way to wrap this up. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think there is hope, and 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 readers and writers need to need to keep pushing. That that's I think the biggest part. Yeah, because I kept I have. All of Kat's books, except for one, are in audio. I don't know why um, a du- Duke in Disguise is not on audio. It just isn't. It's yeah. weird. Um, most of the books are on audio. 
Um, it took a very, it took until um, Olivia Waits Celestial Mechanics for Avon to be like, oh, people want these in paperback. Right, right, because that got a that got a big paperback release. It, it wasn't a simul release either. Like the paperback no, came okay. months later, and it wasn't right. until I think in the fall that they were like, oh, well, we should probably do simul releases mm-hmm. because bookstores want these. Right. Oh, we can actually. And it took so long for Cat's books to end up in Barnes and Noble. It mm-hmm. was like maybe three years later. Oh wow. Because I was like, I can go buy gay books in Barnes & Noble now. Oh, wait, never mind, I can't. <laughs> um, so, like, they now have the simul audio and simul ebook paperback release dates. Okay. Um, now, anyways. And what I want for them is to transfer the impulse books to the main line, so then maybe things all will get marketed properly. Alyssa's <laughs> <laughs> books aren't impulse books so i don't know how they determine who gets an avon book label and who gets an impulse label right yeah good question once ghosted twice shy is impulse but prince on paper isn't i was gonna say i think the novellas in that series are impulse but the the main books are not i don't know why that is but that's who knows what publishing does why they do it's a mystery. So Alyssa <laughs> said in an interview with Katrina Jackson that the novellas were acquired afterwards. Oh, ah, there you go. That makes sense. That makes sense. I think that's all I have to say. I'll probably still be yelling on the internet about this because that's, that's, okay. what, I, that's what I seem to do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the whole reason I started doing the conference was I, I realized, you know, partially through Twitter that, um, you know, the authors and the and the readers and the academics were all talking about the same stuff, just using different language and, and different ways of getting there. So, like, yeah, bringing them into the same room really makes a difference. I, I feel like, you know, when we did this in, in 2018, you know, I, I think we got a great response because it created those sort of conversations. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I think Andrea Martucci at Shelf Love her season two direction of talking more of academic romance people mm-hmm. is going in a really interesting direction. Like, yes, absolutely. It's, it's, it's an important direction to go because, I mean, we our podcast serves a purpose to talk about books and tropes, but I also try to, like, throw in more conversations there. And there's a lot of uh, – there's the Black Romance Oral History Podcast. Yes, uh-huh. which is a, an incredibly important podcast and and if folks haven't started listening to that they should absolutely because that that is uh an academic julie moody moody freeman interviewing some of the the absolute legends of black romance so she's talked with sandra kitt beverly jenkins uh she did an an incredible two-part episode with vivian stevens and all of those things i you know were they they create this oral history that I think is incredibly important. And I, you know, I think someone, someone should podcast with Vincent, uh, Vincent Verga to, to get that, that story down. I think that was, I think that was my therapist who was like, so she, do you want to do an episode with Vincent? And I was like, I I don't know. Should I? Yes. Yes. (laughs) You should. (laughs) Go find all these old gay people. Yeah. So I think, you know, one of the amazing things about podcasts in the romance space is they've become this really important uh, record uh, 
whether it is this podcast or Shelf Love or Faded Mates or the Black Romance podcast, um, where all of these great discussions are happening, all of these historical uh, events are, are sort of being recorded in a way they haven't been before. Um, you know, in the old days, we sort of relied on, you know, things like Romantic Times and newsletters uh, to be the record. But, you know, I think podcasts are, are filling this really interesting space for, for fans and authors to, to talk about things in, in a far more open um, and accessible way than, than they ever did before. Yeah, totally. I think you had mentioned earlier that Gaywick was mentioned in Romantic Times, but that after that, it was like another decade before another gay book was mentioned. I think it was actually more than a decade now that I now that I think about it. But yeah, so, you know, the these things sort of disappear if they're not in in some sort of record. So yeah. I think it, it it's really important to to get a lot of these stories down and recorded. Because the other thing I was trying to find out who was who was the first openly gay writer at, at not even at in the RWA. I actually just found that answer. Oh. Uh, in 2005, Scott Pomfret became the first openly gay author of gay romance to be accepted into RWA. Now, 2005 is also when RWA sent out uh, a very controversial survey about whether uh, the happy ending referred to in their definition of romance had to refer to a man and a woman. So 2005 was a really complicated year for RWA. Because I remember um, his covers are, oh, he has books with Nine Star? He has recent books. Okay. If this is the same Scott that we're talking about. I could be, yeah. Because the the other thing I found was, it was, again, 2005 with the lesbians taking over RWA. That was in reference to Julia Talbot and B.A. Tortuga. Right. Who were the um? They're they're a wonderful couple. They're adorable, but they they write MM romance. Right, and that and so all that ties into you know sort of the rise of e-publishing and and all of that as well. Um, yeah. So yeah, so it, it, you can sort of uh, trace it back to to that 2005 date, which again was you know RWA was founded in 1980, so that was 25 years later. Yep. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, not a great number, but, you know, you know, that's yeah. And that's a whole other. Set that's a whole other thing. Yeah. How did you find out about Scott? I actually just I was I was looking for the date of the survey. And that was when I found the thing about Scott. It was actually yeah. on all on all about romance. I found that. How long has all, been all about romance been around for? Uh, a very long time. Well, I, I guess I don't know to... exactly, but they've been around for a very long time. And that was on their website? Yes. I, I wanted to thank you for coming on, Steve. This is I was I was really sad that I couldn't go out to Bowling Green and yes. meet you and everyone else and actually get to somehow condense this all into fifteen minutes. <laughs> <laughs> but it had to be a challenge, right? <laughs> yeah. I was sitting there like because I, I I don't remember anything from my research classes in college so I'm just like how how do you do because I was like starting out looking on like thrift books and Pinterest for covers Mm -hmm. and then I was like oh wait there's probably archives right right there's probably archives of these books right and Um, and we do have we have a a large collection of these early Avon and and gold medal and and all of those books as well 
So if anyone ever is looking for them, we we have one on our on our website. We actually have a uh, and I need to more prominently post this link, but we have a vintage paperback archive um, that is mostly covers and uh, uh, occasionally blurbs and and, you know, whatever information we have about the book. Because it's um, a lot of work to put these archives online. Yes, that's what it I figured. really is. And it still amazing me, amazed me how much Mount St. Vincent like, actually had for information. Right. Like someone clearly spent a lot of time and a lot of money to put this together. Yeah. <laughs> Instead yeah, of really making it like a PDF list. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. You sort of uh, you find the right people to, to do the digging and then you, you, you get all this fantastic information out of it. And maybe once this pandemic is over, I can actually go to Princeton. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, but again, thank yeah. you so much for joining us today, Steve. You can find me on Twitter at queer underscore reader, and you can find Steve at. You can find the, the Brown Popular Culture Library at bgsu underscore pop cult lib, uh, and you can find me at Stegan S T E G A N. We hope you enjoyed this episode of ROM Book Pod, inclusively yours. If you'd like weekly recommendations for inclusive romance, please take a moment to subscribe. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest at ROM Book Pod. That's R-O-M-B-K-P-O-D. Thank you for joining us, and until next time, happy reading.